This week, we're taking issue with the latest scandal involving Massachusetts State Police. There's some sausage making going on on Beacon Hill involving gun safety, and in Congress, a border bill has been scuttled by none other than Donald Trump. I'm Corey. I'm Matt. I'm Sue. And this is Taking Issue. Our nation was born here, not with a whimper, but with the spark of revolution. One more indictment. And this election is closed out. That's what democracy is. It's a choice of the people, by the people, and for the people. Hello, welcome to another edition of Taking Issue. I am once again joined by Matt Pritchard, NBC Boston political reporter, and Sue O'Connell, NBC Boston political analyst, commentator, and my At Issue co-host. Thanks again for being with us this week. A busy show for you. Uh, We're talking about three big stories. The scandal involving Massachusetts State Police, the gun safety bill that's making its way through the Massachusetts Senate, and a border bill in Congress that is no more. We're going to start with the latest scandal involving Massachusetts State Police. Who likes Swedish fish? Well, apparently... Some Massachusetts state troopers do so much so that they're willing to exchange uh, passing grades for commercial driver's licenses for candy, snowblowers, and other things. And joining us to talk about this is NBC10 Boston investigative reporter Ryan Kath. Ryan, thanks for joining us on Take Taking Issue this week. Uh, if you can, just go ahead and give us the, the sort of quick and dirty version of, of what these, what, six um, folks in all have been federally charged with in this bribery conspiracy scheme. I'm glad you didn't bury the lead there, Corey, because for sure, (laughs) Swedish fish is the headline in this story. That's what grabbed my attention right away. Um, I think the easiest way to explain this is that in Massachusetts, if you want to be a truck driver, you have to get what's called a commercial driving license. And there's a reason it's not supposed to be an easy process. I know one of the truck drivers that were interviewed by one of our reporters this week described these trucks as what can almost be these weapons that weigh tens of thousands of pounds. I mean, there are a lot of safety issues when it comes to driving big trucks. So what's alleged in this particular uh, corruption case is that the Massachusetts state troopers who are overseeing this process, they're the ones that will test people and make sure they get a high enough score to be able to acquire their commercial driver's license. Um, What's alleged here is that they were basically taking uh, a number of different things in exchange for giving these drivers passing scores. Um, in some cases, these drivers didn't get a high enough score to pass. And in some cases, according to the indictment, they didn't even take the test. And it was what was called, uh, they determined in this case, this was called a golden handshake. And there are a number of text messages in the indictment where the troopers are texting back and forth and referring to drivers and saying, oh, yeah, he got the golden handshake today, so he's good to go. Um Along with the Swedish fish, there were, uh, I guess, cases of bottled water and more pricey examples. There was a snowblower. There was a freshly paved driveway. There was a nice granite post for a mailbox. So in terms of the alleged bribes that were occurring in this case, uh, some of the more unique things that I've heard about as opposed to just straight up cash. So we are recording this podcast on a Thursday, and, and just today we got news that one of the Uh, alleged conspirators in this scheme, a sergeant with the Massachusetts State Police, uh, has been given a dishonorable discharge. So in other words, correct me if I'm wrong, he was basically fired. He retired from the department uh, today. He was one of two that had uh, been suspended indefinitely without pay. Uh, Ryan, what has the response been from Massachusetts State Police uh, in in the wake of, of this indictment coming down in terms of that CDL unit? Uh, that that is in charge of giving folks their licenses once they pass the test. 
So they did say that this was flagged, you know, a little while back when they got word that the feds were looking into this and they launched their own internal investigation when that happened. And uh, when they put out their statement uh, in the wake of this indictment, they did tell us that a number of improvements to the CDL process have been made. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind is that uh, the troopers who are overseeing the process will now be responsible for wearing body cameras with each of these exchanges. They said they're going to get more pop-in visits, uh, inspections to see how the process is going, along with a number of other things. But I think what most people would probably ask in a situation like this is why does it take uh, an alleged corruption scheme for you to go through and actually modernize your system and make sure that it's as efficient as possible and it's it's accountable. Um, because don't forget, this is all coming just a couple of years after a widespread overtime scheme, which resulted in the loss of job for more than two dozen state troopers. It, in, it involved uh, federal criminal charges, state criminal charges, restitution to taxpayers so this is all happening while that overtime fraud uh, scheme is just fresh in the rearview mirror has, has anybody sort of at the top of, of the state police department you know with, with this scandal the overtime scandal you mentioned now i guess do you know who the highest person who who's lost their job because of this um or, or has leadership sort of been able to sort of stay in place and survive scandal after scandal there have been a number of leadership changes over the past few years. Um, Sue might be able to speak to this a little better, but I know one of the sources of controversy in, in the higher ranks of the state police is that I believe it's statutorily re required that the colonel of the state police has to come from the state police and they cannot go outside of the agency to appoint a colonel. And so I know that's been one of the issues that's come up a lot during some of these scandals is that it's time to bring in an outsider and help clean up an agency that has just seen black eye after black eye over the past five, six years. So Sue, I want to bring you in because anytime something happens involving law enforcement or, or, or politician uh, in Massachusetts. Or sweet as fish. Or, or sweet, sweet as fish. <laughs> Sue, Sue usually, you know, talks to Matt and I like, well, I remember when this happened. Have <laughs> yeah. you seen anything like this before? Is this just kind of par for the course for yeah. the, the state troopers? No, I mean, this is, this is the ongoing, like when we talk about a scandal or a corruption scandal or an alleged scandal with the state police, we have to be clear about which one it is. And it's always the latest. And at the end of every story that Ryan and other great reporters have to do, at the bottom of the story, they have to list all the other scandals that have happened in the state police. And it's not ancient history. We're not talking about 20, 30 years ago. There seems to be one on a regular basis. And there's a couple of things about... Um, to Ryan's point, it is true they have to hire from within. And you have this police agency, the state police agency, which all the other police officers, all the other departments look at and wonder why they get to get away with the stuff that they get away with, why there's not more oversight. Not long ago, we had a huge um, territory war between the Boston police and the state police over the uh, F troop area over by Logan Airport about who gets to do the overtime and the details there. Um, that was a turf war that happened between the, the, the two police agencies. You know, we, we make light of this a little bit because of the Swedish fish, obviously, and getting paid in bottled water doesn't really seem like a big deal. But 
um, it does open the question as to where these are truck drivers. And as the daughter of a, a truck driver, a Teamster truck driver, um, I will just say that my dad passed away in 1978 and we didn't run out of toilet paper until about 1985 because toilet paper would fall off the truck and we would keep it. He worked for a paper company. So, you know, obviously it, it appears that these payments were with stolen goods that f fell off a truck. There's no other reason to pay somebody in Swedish fish unless they just happen to come upon it. Um, and the other part of this is the obviously the, the danger, right? We have stirring all the time, and we expect that these truck drivers are going to be skilled and know how to read signs. Well, apparently, if they're not being tested, they can't. We've had horrific truck accidents in the region where uh, there have been fatalities, and, and you wonder if these how this happens, and this is an example of it. But, you know, the state police have... Um, a lot of responsibility, but often not a lot to do. And there are also some concerns that this is the this is the police department that protects the governor, that is close with the governor, not just Governor Healy, but every single governor, and that they have such close ties to state lawmakers. And some would some conspiracy theorists might argue they also know a lot of secrets about lawmakers, that somehow they are protected, and only when a scandal like this happens, like when the feds are looking into it, to Ryan's point, do they finally do something about it. But the state police, you know, I, I, unless something changes dramatically, this is the kind of scandal we're going to see year after year, as we have. Matt, I know you've been on Beacon Hill the, la the last few days on, on something wholly unrelated. Are you hearing any scuttlebutt there, any reaction to, to this latest scandal? No, I mean, it's, it's been pretty quiet. I mean, they've been busy with a lot of, of other things, and we're going to get to that in a minute with the gun bill that was up here uh, earlier on in the day. In fact, as we were talking about this, you know, I've only been in Massachusetts for six, seven months and was just thinking about, you know, what sort of action could the legislature, could the governor take when they see these sort of scandals come along? And I guess the question for either Ryan or Sue would be, in the past, have they taken action? Has the legislature tried to step in and, and make it so that these sort of scandals aren't taking place? I'm glad you brought that up, Matt, because uh, that was one thing I was hoping we could get to. Uh, we've talked about the safety. We've talked about the accountability with a with an alleged corruption scream like this. But uh, there's the taxpayer money issue. And going back four or five years when the overtime fraud scheme surfaced, we reported that a number of the troopers who were involved um, abruptly retired and stepped down. And then what we found out then was that by virtue of stepping away from the agency, they were able to cash in these enormous checks for all of the vacation time and sick time they'd accrued over these years. And so by stepping down in scandal, they were immediately able to be paid, in some cases, $80,000, $90,000 a piece in accrued vacation and sick time. And I know afterwards we went to uh, Senator Bruce Tarr, who proposed legislation that if someone steps down while under investigation for misconduct or a potential crime, those payments should be frozen until the cases work their way through the system. Otherwise, they, they forfeit them. And I know you guys are going to talk a lot about sausage making, but I'm sure you know uh, where that legislation has gone <laughs> over the past four years. One of the things I'd like to mention is, that comes up a lot in situations like this is what happens to the pension. The way Massachusetts law works is that if you are a public employee who's convicted of a crime related to your job, then your pension can be stripped. However, it doesn't happen right away. You have to be convicted of that crime and then sentenced of that crime. And at that point, the state retirement board 
can hold a hearing and decide to uh, forfeit an employee's pension. And remember, it has to be related to the job. In this case, I don't know if there's an argument you can make it wasn't related to their job of overseeing the CBL process, but we have seen some pretty creative arguments in past years about ways to say whatever crime they were convicted of did not relate to their, their official position. Ryan, I know in, in, in situations like this, there are so many follow-up stories, so many questions to ask. As soon as I heard about what, what this scheme involved, my first question was, hmm, I wonder if any of these guys who did not pass their test but ultimately got their CDL have caused any accidents, have been involved in any sort of violations. What other, what other sort of strings, without trying to give the game away to any competition that may be listening, what other sort of strings are you, are you guys kind of tugging at uh, to, to, to move this story forward? I think that's the biggest one, Corey, is figuring out who these drivers are. Um, federal prosecutors during the press conference they had said they had identified at least two dozen drivers who received this so-called golden handshake. Uh, the way we're going to be hamstrung right now is, and I know in the past we've talked about public records laws, it's going to be really tough to get the information we need because there are a lot of privacy laws surrounding driving records in the state. And there are also exemptions that can be thrown down for ongoing investigations, um, you know, of which this could be considered. So we're certainly going to be trying to identify who some of these drivers are and if there have been any incidents. But I think it's going to be a tricky process to get there. All right. Well, we will definitely be keeping our eye out. Ryan Kath, BC 10 Boston investigator. We appreciate you taking the time. We'll uh, we'll keep an eye out for further coverage because it's, it's certainly a fascinating story. And, and who doesn't, you know, not like Swedish fish. So. That's that's my compensation for doing this exactly. podcast, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. We'll pay you, pay you in boxes of Swedish fish. Thanks I have so much, toilet man. paper. I still have toilet it's paper. Just, like I said, toilet paper <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. We appreciate the time. Thank you. All right, let's move to Beacon Hill now where there's a lot of sausage making going on, especially in the Senate as it relates to gun safety. Matt, you've been up on Beacon Hill for uh, a few days this week now. Where do things stand? I know there were a lot of amendments that the Senate had to go through um, so give us just sort of a status update and also, you know, what's in this bill? What, what are they trying to accomplish? Yeah, well, Corey, this has been slow progress all day long. I think you heard me mention around 79 amendments are pushed onto this Senate bill, and they were scheduled to gavel in at 11 a.m. this morning, which is Thursday, uh, February 1st. They didn't actually make it to the floor until 12.15, and immediately with Senator Bruce Tarr, the minority leader, bringing uh, resolutions forward to try and move this into committee. One of his uh, big concerns is he feels like there wasn't a public hearing held for this particular gun reform bill. He feels like more public input needs to be put into it, but that was voted down by voice vote. And now they're starting to go through the process of going through these different amendments. Now, what's included in this bill, it's pretty wide ranging and it sweeps over a lot of different areas. Gun, ghost guns are one of the big things that it looks to address to make sure that that isn't something that's taking place in the Commonwealth. We also uh, talk a little bit about a liability shield for different gun manufacturers. They're trying to strip that away so that uh, they can move forward with legal action against these different um, gun makers if they're involved in some sort of illegal activity or or tied back to some sort of illegal activity. And of course, the main goal here for lawmakers is to try and curb gun violence as a whole. 
uh, honing in on mental health. But as you might imagine with this issue, as it always is, there are people on both sides that feel like it's not accomplishing everything or it's not accomplishing anything. So uh, coming up, obviously, if you check our website, you'll see we've talked with uh, gun reform advocates. We've also talked with gun rights activists who uh, each have very different views on this and are uh, each taking a very different approach when it comes to whether this bill should pass or be tabled. So if you're not familiar with the phrase ghost gun, it's a, it's a phrase that has entered the lexicon the last few years. And these are basically guns that are sold as kits to be put together by the buyer at home. Um, a lot of them for, for a long time were not serialized, uh, so no identifications. Um, in, in some of the cities that I've reported in, in Washington, D.C., I know from, from one year to the next, there was about a 200% rise in the use of ghost guns because they were practically, you know, untraceable. So we know there have been, there has been push for federal legislation to get these gun parts serialized. I know that's what this bill does. It wants, also wants to uh, prohibit the use of, of 3D printers to make the parts um, that are not serialized without a license. Uh, so it aims to accomplish a, a, a good portion, but as Matt mentioned, there is that, that sort of liability shield and, and a more nuanced things that are in this bill. Sue, what do you make of the sort of slow process? Because if I'm not mistaken, this is already, the House has already passed its own version of this bill. It does not have some of the things that the Senate has in, in, in theirs, uh, but this has just been another slow lawmaking process on Beacon Hill. Yeah, I can imagine um, when you guys moved to Massachusetts and heard that the Democrats were in charge of everything at the State House, that perhaps things would move quickly, right? But no, they don't. They take forever. And, um, you know, the challenge here is both on one hand, you can appreciate the process of making sure that um, parties are heard from. And there's been an open comment time for this. So I know that the folks at the Gun, Office, uh, Gun Owners Action League um, would like more process. But people have had time to weigh in on this. And there's a laundry list of what everybody would like, especially those who want tighter gun safety controls, even tighter than what's being uh, proposed. So I understand the, the, the need to put many amendments forward and to talk about many things. But at the same time, this is an issue that statewide with, with voters and citizens and lawmakers, just about everyone agrees that these changes should be made. And it makes me wonder why they're not made more quickly. Now, I understand there's been a split historically uh, between the Senate and the House regarding getting things done, even though they're all Democrats. There's some territorial issues, the second time I'm going to use that term in this podcast, territorial issues between uh, the House and the Senate. But at the same time, it, you know, it makes me wonder if we're all in agreement, if the lawmakers agree, the citizens agree, folks are moving forward that we have to get this done to comply with the Supreme Court ruling. Uh, if they weren't spending all this time on something that we agree on, what could they be doing instead of, of, of taking all this time to get this gun bill done? And that's, that's the part that I look at. I, I have no doubt that in the end, there'll be a more robust more strict gun safety bill that is in compliance. Uh, and in the end, people will say, well, why couldn't they just agree with that at the beginning? And that's, the, I think, the frustration that people get watching how long it takes these lawmakers to do things and what they could be spending their time doing otherwise. So, yeah, it'll, it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see because we, we know that there have been federal efforts uh, to, to, to crack down on just the proliferation of ghost guns. And you, you talk to you know, um, folks who, who work in the investigative space at, at police departments, um, it is so hard to 
trace and, and, and track a gun that has been used um, in a crime uh, when there's no serial number on it. And I know that some Second Amendment advocates uh, have said, you know, well, just, just putting a serial number isn't going to stop somebody from using it. Uh, but then, you know, some in law enforcement counter and say, well, if, if, we can, if we can get the gun and it has a serial number on it, that's at least some place to start. Um, so we're going we're gonna to see, like, like Matt said, it is Thursday. Uh, Matt, do you get a sense that this thing is going to pass? Um, or, it, or is it just going to get bogged down in, in so many amendments that it gets, you know, kicked to, 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 to next week or even further beyond? Yeah, I mean, uh, for everything I've heard from Pre Senate President Spilka's office is that they want to get this passed and over to the House tonight, and it may take a while. They may have to go late in the evening to do it, 11 p.m., midnight, 1 a.m., that sort of thing. So that's the goal, but obviously, even if it makes it over to the House, there's a chance that the House is going to have concerns with what the Senate has done. You have to remember the House bill was 138 pages, something like that. The Senate stripped out a bunch of pages out of that bill, slimmed it down, and the House obviously feels like they had this bill, they had built it the way that they had wanted it. So there's a chance that this winds up in conference committee as it is. And when I speak with the Gun Owners Action League and a bunch of others, they say they're going to continue to fight this all the way up to July 31st if they have to, to try and kick the can down the road. So while it may pass out of the Senate, we are not anywhere close to the end of this fight legislatively. Sue, if you had to guess, where is, from a legislative standpoint, where is the opposition going to come from ge geographically? Is this, is this a, a really big issue for, you know, folks out in, in more rural parts of Massachusetts, Western Mass, or, or, or is there pushback, you know, from, a, from the Boston, greater Boston area? Yeah, I actually don't think, uh, Corey, there's a lot of pushback at all on this when it comes to the actual uh, folks who are legally owning guns. I mean, I know the NRA is upset that it's going to expand red flag laws. I don't think anyone really against there being an expansion of uh, uh, if someone has a gun and you're worried they're going to be violent, that you can go and get an assessment of whether or not they should have possession of that gun, which will ultimately, if they don't commit a crime, be returned to them. So there's that. Uh, you talk about the um, the serial uh, numbers on the ghost guns, you know, there's pushback that those are legally owned guns already, so you can't, you know, push something that wasn't originally intended onto it. I don't think anyone that w that's got some common sense ideas here is going to push back on that. Uh, and then there's um, making sure that I think the laws about where uh, uh, the guns can, if you can bring a gun into a municipal building, I don't think anybody is really against that as well. So there's, there's, there's not a lot of outside, and I know my friends at the, the Gun Owners Action League would certainly disagree with me on every single one of those points, but at the same time, I don't think there's really a lot of external pressure. It's coming from inside the building. That's where the call is coming from. It's between the House and the Senate arguing about this bill, which again, is not getting a lot of outside pressure. The NRA does not have a strong uh, structure here. We're hearing from law enforcement that many things on this they would like to see uh, enacted in Massachusetts that they feel could be stronger or are a loophole. So the call's coming from inside the building. All right. All right, let's, uh, let's go to Washington. I think it's important to remember, oh, ahead, too. Ahead, I mean, there's... I was just going to say, I mean, th this bill, the Senate's bill that they've put forward has law enforcement endorsement, which is something the House didn't have. So to Sue's point, there is that support coming from outside the building, inside the building. And then, of course, there's always going to be those external voices that are upset. It's just a question of if, if, if everybody can come to the table at Thanksgiving, you know, family dinner and actually get things done.
All right, let's move to Washington, D.C. There was a unicorn spotted on Capitol Hill <laughs> until former President Donald Trump Shot killed it. it. He killed yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> killed it. We are talking, of course, the unicorn being bipartisanship and that example being a border bill that was struck in the Senate or at least a deal to get a border bill passed out of the Senate was done, was going to go to the House. You can say it was dead on arrival when it got there, but that is fine. But even before it got there, the deal appears to have been scuttled because former President Trump weighed in and said, Republicans, unless you get an absolutely perfect deal, there is no reason to sign this border deal. Now that has led Democrats and even some Republicans to argue that we compromised, we reached bipartisanship agreement, and a person who's not even in the executive branch of the government anymore, but is the front runner for the GOP nomination and wants to be president again, has stepped in and said, kill the bill, don't negotiate, because he wants to use it during the campaign as a cudgel against President Biden. I think hearing those arguments from Democrats, it's, it's, it's to be expected, uh, especially given any time Donald Trump weighs in on something that, that's happening in real time on the Hill. But I've, I've almost really never seen so many Republicans, and to their credit, not just Republicans in the Senate, but you are starting to hear more House GOP members saying, what the hell are we doing? This is the most leverage that we have ever had in a border immigration negotiation. They gave us some of the things that we wanted, and now the guy who wants to be in the White House is telling us that we shouldn't do this. Sue, what do you make of, of just the latest sort of example of the the grip that Donald Trump and the MAGA base has on the Republican Party in Congress. You know, Corey, it, it's just absolutely disgusting. I mean, basically, you, you have this, these lawmakers who have spun this narrative, the Republican lawmakers and the Republican Party have spun this narrative over the past two months or so, so that they can keep the border as an issue in the presidential campaign, because when there is chaos or crisis or an overwhelming border issue, however you want to define it, whatever you look at as a problem at the border, they think it is good for Donald Trump. It shows that if Donald Trump can step in and become president again, he will build the wall and the border crisis will be fixed. When in reality, what we have is a Democratic president, Joe Biden, who has tried to um, uh, lead with compassion when it comes to dealing with migrants at the border and has been able, the Republicans have basically given him an ability to stand up there and say, I will close the border. I mean, if you had said a year ago that Joe Biden would be saying, give me the power to close the border and I will do it. And that is because of the response to what Donald Trump has been doing behind the scenes. Just to be clear, what the Republicans and the Democrats were suggesting, of course, a president can close the border at any time using executive order. But the compromise bill that they had put forward was that if an average number of crossings over the border go over 5,000, that any president, not just President Biden, but any president in the future, it would be signed into law that that president can shut the border until they can come up with a plan to better adjudicate the asylum seekers or come up with better security. And the Republicans, because Donald Trump told them to, decided that was a bad idea. We have had no progress 
on any kind of negotiations on the border for as long as I can remember, probably for decades. And this was given to them, given to the American public, given to the people trying to cross the border as a solution, and the Republicans shut it down, while at the same time, they're trying to impeach the uh, Homeland Security Director, right, who is saying that it's his fault, Mayorkas's fault, that people are coming over the border, and they're making this narrative that all this is bad. And I think it's gonna backfire terribly for them, where uh, liberal and progressive Democrats who think Biden has taken a step too far to the right on the border, well, now Biden doesn't have to do it. So he gets credit for at least having said, I'm going to shut the border. And on, on the right, the, the normal Republicans, as I keep stealing Congressman uh, Stephen Lynch's phrase, the normal Republicans are going to see this for what it is, causing human misery and suffering for not only the folks crossing at the border, but also the border towns, simply for politics' sake, so that Donald Trump will have something that he, he can run on. And it's just disgusting. When you're losing guys like Dan Crenshaw and James Lankford, you've got a problem. Dan Crenshaw has come out and said, it's, it's stupid for us to say no to something that we haven't even seen. And, and James Lankford going on the Sunday shows and saying, it's ludicrous. You know, these aren't the Mitt Romneys of the party. These are some of your more hardline Republicans saying it's ludicrous that we're going to scuttle a deal that gives more power and more authority to folks who want to go even further than President Biden on, on immigration and border security, like a potential President Trump, giving him that authority. But yet, no, we, we don't want to do that because we don't want to give a quote unquote win to President Biden, and you've heard that, that phrase, give a win, used by some in conservative media when, when, when talking to Republicans about why they, they are sort of compromising. And it's just, it's like we're in the upside down because Republicans hated that President Obama did so many things via executive order. Then they looked away when Donald Trump did things via executive order. They don't want Joe Biden doing things via executive order. And when he tries to go through Congress and actually gets something done in a bipartisan fashion, they say, no, we don't want to do that. But you know what? President Biden can issue an executive order to close the border when he wants. And, and, right. And that's the their argument back is that he can do it already. Right. But and and, and it just, it, 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 that's baffling. And then, and then you've, hear, you've heard recently from the Mike Johnsons of the world, from the Wisconsin Senator Ron Johnsons of the world, we think the number of border crossings should be zero. I don't know if that's ever happened in human history. In any, in any nation where, where border crossings, and we're not talking about illegal crossings necessarily, we're also talking about folks who are presenting themselves at border checkpoints to claim asylum, it's humanly impossible to bring that number to zero. Um, so it's just, it's, 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 it, is, it does seem to the outside person that this is sort of a moving of the goalpost while you have cities and states like Massachusetts, and I'll go to Matt on this, that are asking the federal government to do something as we continue to see migrants coming to Massachusetts and, and now we're putting them in rec centers in communities that are you know, historically disadvantaged because they can't sleep inside the airport. Um, so I just, the, the frustration, the frustration is, is ripples out across America. And when you just look at the stone that's thrown in the water, it is the, the GOP and, and for, for all intents and purposes. Yeah, I mean, and you can feel that frustration here in Massachusetts. Earlier this week, I spoke with Governor Maura Healey about this and just the fact that this was on the table. This is something that she's been calling for for months for the Biden administration to do something. You don't often hear that from a Democratic governor in an election year putting pressure on the Democratic president to do something about the border. But that's exactly what was happening. And here it is. It's right there for the taking. 
and the GOP is the one who shoots it out of the air. I think it's just it's just grinding this frustration down on on people here in Massachusetts, on lawmakers here in Massachusetts. And just when it comes to Congress, I think it confirms a couple of things that the American public already knows, but I think a lot of us don't want to actually look in the face, which is that a lot of these people are just there for their career, right? They're they're trying uh, to move forward their party's objective. They have no interest in actually governing, doing things for the people. It's all about winning and it's all about doing what's right for your party instead of doing what's right for the American people in that particular moment. And you can feel that frustration. I mean, it is no wonder that we are so divided when you look at how our leaders are frustrating themselves uh, when they're there in Congress. And then the other camp there in Congress is those that think bipartisanship is the wrong way to govern. And the minute that they see a bipartisan bill, uh, they're just going to shoot it out of the air because they don't think that that's the way that things should be done, despite the fact that that's how our system is designed to work. You're not only seeing it on this bipartisan border deal that's killed, but you're seeing it on a bipartisan tax deal that's also trying to make its way through because, again, Nobody wants to give President Biden a win as we get closer to November. I don't think average Joe American uh, is happy to see that, is happy to see that bills are just being frustrated and not being allowed to move forward just because there's an election in 10 months. And so, also, Corey, I'd, I'd also to, yeah, just the other thing is that it's incredibly frustrating to watch Americans who don't understand what our border law, our, our asylum law, our migration law, what the laws are. Right. And, and getting upset about things, uh, about uh, calling the people who are here being housed just a couple of blocks from my house as illegals when they have entered the country legally. When you present yourself for asylum, you do not have to present yourself at a, a port. You can enter at a port of entry. You can do it at any part. Anytime you cross over into the United States, when you see an official, you can ask for asylum. You can't ask for asylum before you come into the country. That's just not how it works. And if they de deem you at not a security risk, certainly they make mistakes sometimes, but generally they don't, then they, they register you, they put you somewhere, they keep track of you, and your claim is adjudicated, and the majority of the adjudications end up with the people going back. Right. That's why we don't have this overwhelming number of immigrants who have come here via the asylum process. If you don't like the fact that we have migrants living in a rec center, then elect people who are going to change the asylum laws or change the asylum process. That's, that's what the argument about is here. It's, people come over because, as we know, the law says any individual who presents themselves for asylum is granted the adjudication process as long as they are not uh, a security risk. That's what the law says. If you don't like it, change it. But demonizing these people who are here is barking up the wrong tree. So like anything that happens during an election year, it not only has implications and ramifications on the Hill, it has implications and ramifications on the campaign trail. I want to read you a quote, and this is from Nikki Haley, talking about Donald Trump telling Republicans to back off from this deal, quote, Donald Trump, the last thing he needs to do is tell them to wait to pass the border deal until the election. Matt, I'm curious, you, you've heard Haley's stump speech. She, she says the border is chaos. She, she lays it at the feet of Joe Biden. I'm curious now if this serves as a sort of attack line for her against Donald Trump saying that you know, even even as American lawmakers try to come to bipartisan agreement, which should always be the goal, you have the former president sowing these seeds of chaos. 
and, and telling Republicans to back away? Or has maybe Trump backed her into a corner because he can just come out and say, Nikki Haley is going to be weak on the border. Look, she just, she just supported this border deal that, that I considered weak and, and not beautiful. Well, I think, I mean, when you look at Donald Trump's base, I mean, they're automatically going to fall into his perspective or how he sees things. So that base isn't going anywhere. But I think there is a large section of the electorate on the uh, closer to the middle side of the right side of the fence, as well as the middle, and perhaps even some moderate uh, Democrats who might have might be listening to that and saying, hey, here's someone who is saying we need to be focusing on bipartisanship. We need to do something right now about this. So let's take the deal that's on the table. I think this plays well uh, into Nikki Haley's point that she's been trying to make for months, which, like you said, is that Donald Trump brings chaos along with him. And he's proving right now that that can even happen when he's not in the White House. And so, you know, yeah, I think it is beneficial to Haley. I don't know if it really benefits Donald Trump any more than the people that he's already convinced. I, I can't imagine that there's that he's pulling someone because of this. I, I imagine this benefits Nikki Haley more than Donald Trump. Sue, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just looking at the results of the Quinnipiac um, poll that, that just came out uh, showing Biden edging ahead of Trump and there being a gender divide with more women supporting Biden than Trump. But then, of course, in the head-to-head -head between Haley and Biden, Haley actually in this poll, looks like she could beat Biden, but she's beating Biden based on independence, right? Which is what we saw in the New Hampshire results in the New Hampshire primary. Um, I, I think that her argument and her rebuking of, of Trump helps her with independence. It helps her with some reasonable Republicans. But again, to Corey, as you say, you can't win the championship unless you win the division title. And she's really not making any progress with Republicans in beating Trump. So um, again, Trump is not playing to get more votes. He's playing to the base. How that's going to help him win in a general election is still beyond me. Yeah, it'll be, it'll be, it's going to be interesting to see, of course, you know, the, the, the South Carolina Republican Party uh, primary still, still a few weeks away. Um, but we do have the Democratic South Carolina primary coming up on Sunday. And that's, that leads me to our, our little final segment. Uh, it's a new segment we're introducing this week called Taking Issue Tidbits. And these are just sort of any political stories that are out there uh, that are piquing your interest. So I'll go ahead and start. That, that, that is my Taking Issue Tidbit for this week. What we're looking for in the South Carolina primary, we fully expect Joe Biden to win the Democratic primary, but a lot of folks are saying this is sort of this early litmus test of whether or not, you know, black voters are still, quote, riding with Biden. Uh, we've heard a lot of, of hand-wringing um, and, and folks throwing up their arms in frustration at the, the lack of decent and adequate messaging to the black community, fears that black voters are going to stay home uh, during this election cycle and, and thus give the, 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 the White House to a Republican. I don't know how much we'll be able to glean from the results. Obviously, you want Biden to pull a high number, but I just think the calculation changes when you know who is going to win. And so, you, especially in a primary, you know Biden is going to win, so maybe I'll just wait and, and vote until November because right now he doesn't necessarily need my vote. Does that make sense? Like I don't necessarily know if you can gauge excitement about voting for Joe Biden based on how many primary voters come out because we know he's, you know, going, going to win anyway. 
Listen, every time I voted for um, John McCain, I voted for John McCain because I didn't, I wasn't worried about who was in the Democratic primary. So um, yeah, I don't, I, especially since you have this primary bookending the month. So the Democratic primary is this weekend, the Republican primary is at the end of the month. So if we're able to look at some uh, dollars to dollars data, if you will, about when the last time there was a Democratic incumbent and what the Democratic turnout was in South Carolina, if it is significantly lower, I don't think it means that, um, and it's, uh, we should note it's also a state that you can vote in either primary. You don't have to, it, it's an open primary. So if you don't vote in the Democratic primary and you're a Democrat, you can vote if you want in the Republican primary at the end of the month. So if Biden, uh, if the Democratic turnout is substantially lower than the last time there was a situation like this, uh, we can probably expect that a lot of those Democratic voters are going to show up for Nikki Haley at the end of the month. But then again, to your point, Corey, they're not Republicans voting for Nikki Haley. They'll probably be independents and Democrats, and that doesn't help her in the long run. I mean, it does help her in the long run, doesn't help her get to the long run. Exactly. Matt? Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, twofold. I, I'm interested to see how many of these external candidates in both races are still around come Super Tuesday. I mean, just as a Massachusetts resident, since we'll be voting on Super Tuesday, it'll be interesting to see where Nikki Haley is at when we get to that point. Is Dean Phillips still hanging around there in the Democratic uh, primary, even though his, his entire uh, campaign is sort of, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to use the word pointless, but maybe that is what it is uh, at this point for him. You know, as I've gone along the trail, I've had a lot of candidates tell me they were going to be in the race by Super Tuesday. None of them are still in. And so it's just kind of interesting as you talk with politicians, what they say and what ultimately actually ends up unfolding as we go along. And then the, the other thing I'm sort of interested in is the amount of Republican governors heading down to the southern border there to uh, uh, help out uh, Governor Greg Abbott in, in his quest with the border. Included there is Governor Chris Sununu from New Hampshire, who we've gotten to spend a lot of time with. And so he's always just fascinating to me, uh, how he sort of straddles the line between moderate and being on the Republican side of the fence. Yeah, we'll, yeah see if, uh, we'll see if our buddy Asa Hutchinson still makes the trip to Massachusetts. I know. Like he <laughs> yeah, we're waiting. Weeks ago. He said he would. <laughs> I oh, should send right him now. a text, yeah. Oh, no, he's not. <laughs> All right, Sue what, is, uh, Sue, what is your tidbit for this week? Well, my tidbit is that the Boston City Council actually got along so far uh, this year, and they passed a $13 million anti-terror grant um, that had been formally squashed by them and um, suddenly, magically, got new city councilors and money on the table, and they accepted it. So I'm heartened, at least, I think, that um, this, this might be a step forward in the right direction for the city council, which, of course, had been... Um, uh, just plagued last year by all sorts of things. I also want to note, uh, we're still um, following the Kendra Lara case. Um, she was supposed to be in court yesterday. We're recording this on Thursday. We haven't, to, to try and get those charges, uh, all the charges, I think she probably is asking for all the charges to be dropped, although she admitted uh, to driving without a license. But we're finding out that the black box data that she had, uh, it turns out was accurate, that she was not doing um, 56, 50 plus miles an hour in a 25 mile an hour zone, probably only traveling 27. So I'm still paying attention to that case. And, and as, it, as it unwinds, we're gonna look a little deeper into how it all ended up getting her charged uh, to that degree. So Boston City Council, still, still my little tidbit. Well, and I, I have to point out, you use the word plague. We can also talk about the rats are there at City Council yes. as well. Is that, is that, is that your tidbit for this week, Matt? Yeah. 
I guess it's one of them, at least. It's uh, it's interesting. I mean, Sue, you know all about, right? This is a huge problem in Boston. It is. I live in Roxbury, and I I, I say that I'm, I'm 62, and I've been um, afraid of rats my whole life, and I'm no longer afraid of them because I see them all the time now. They're like, oh, look, a coyote, a squirrel, a raccoon, a rat, you know. So it's 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 really that bad, um, and uh, it's we need a czar. We need a czar. Have to have it. All right, guys. Well, unless you've got anything else for this week, I think we'll just end it there. Uh, but please do join us again next week on the Taking Issue podcast. Who knows what we'll be discussing. A lot changes uh, in a seven-day period. This weekend, uh, we've got Ad Issue coming at you at 1130 Sunday on NBC10 Boston. We'll be speaking with uh, Senate President Karen Spilka. And we're going to talk to the folks who are right in the thick of the Newton teachers strike. Uh, they've already missed double-digit days worth of classes. Uh, and it appears that while they are moving closer together, that there's still a lot to iron out. So we're going to talk to a few folks about that. Again, that's Sunday at 1130 on NBC10 Boston. But for now, for Sue O'Connell, for Matt Pritchard, I'm Corey Smith. We'll talk to you next week.